Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks given to the Farnham U3A World History Group. Today, our subject is the London Underground with Tim Davis. Please note, this talk has been re-recorded because of issues with the original recording. The London Underground, 1863 to 2019. I'm going to start this talk by asking a question. How much of the London Underground is actually underground? Believe it or not, only around 45%. And in fact, only the Waterloo and City line is completely underground. And the Victoria line is completely underground, apart from its maintenance depot. So what was London like before the underground? Let's consider how people travelled through London before the first underground was built. There was foot, but remember my talk on sanitation a few months ago and the threat from above. If you were wealthy, you could get someone else to do the walking and sit in your sedan chair as you were carried from place to place. You also need to look where you trod, because a lot of people went by horseback, and horses leave remains. There were horse-drawn carts, leaving more remains. There were horse-drawn omnibuses, carriages and stagecoaches, leaving a lot more on the roadway, so you really did have to be careful where you stepped. And then, of course, we had cattle travelling to market. Oxford Street was a main thoroughfare by which cattle travelled to market. On the 10th of January 1863, the underground removed all those issues, as long as you were happy to wait and travel in a smoke-filled tunnel. Now there were vents in the streets to allow the smoke and steam to escape, and young men used to wait to watch ladies passing over the vents as the smoke was expelled by the trains. But then sulphurous fumes were said to be good for you, as was smoking, although the Metropolitan Railway banned smoking right from the start. So today, when you travel on the London Underground, you are travelling through over 150 years of design, if you know what you're looking for. The initial dream, who were the personalities who created this amazing underground railway? The first was Charles Pearson, who lived from the 4th of October 1793 to the 14th of September 1862. He wasn't an engineer or a town planner, he was a solicitor. He was a true visionary who had this idea of an underground railway, but sadly he didn't live to see it open. In 1845, he envisaged the Fleet Valley Railway Tunnel and in 1846 proposed a central underground terminal to be used by all the rail operators. In 1854, he promoted a plan for a metropolitan railway between Prade Street in Paddington and Farringdon. The line opened on the 10th of January 1863, only four months after his death. Another of the personalities was John Fowler. Now, John Fowler was born in Yorkshire 
and he was a railway engineer and a cartographer, and he was given the task of designing the complex engineering of the Metropolitan Railway, and then the District Railway. And he created a fireless steam engine, which had heat-retaining firebricks in the boiler, so that once the fire was out, it would keep producing steam. And the use of dampers in enclosed spaces limited the fire and the smoke. It was, however, a failure. He later designed London Victoria Station, Glasgow St Enoch Station, Manchester Central Station and was the chief engineer of the 4th Railway Bridge. He was created a baronet in 1890. So let's look at the coming of the Metropolitan Railway. Now the first thing to consider is the new road. This was built in 1757 and ran from Bishop's Road in Paddington to the city. It was renamed in 1857 to be the Marylebone Road, the Euston Road and Pentonville Road. And it reduced traffic in Oxford Street. It became London's first bypass. It became London's first bus route, with buses run by George Shillybeer. Now, there were a number of plans for the Metropolitan Railway, and Plan A, round about 1845, was for a wide, covered-over cutting, an atmospheric railway. It was proposed that there would be a half-underground station at Farringdon, connecting with stations all over England. This central terminal for all the railways coming into London. Now, Farringdon was a slum area being redeveloped by the Corporation of London. And another benefit would have been it would have connected the Farringdon station with new homes for artisans and labourers. These were proposed six miles north of London. And, of course, there would be cheap ticket prices for the artisans to travel into their work in London. It was proposed to move Smithfield Market to Islington, so no more cattle would be driven through London. Plan A was rejected. If you have a plan A, you need a plan B. And plan B was a railway going below the new road, connecting new railway station termini at Paddington, at Euston, at St Pancras, at King's Cross, and it would carry on into the city, terminating in Farringdon. Plan B? Rejected. Now business becomes involved. In August 1854, a consortium received the Royal Assent for the Bayswater, Paddington and Hoban Bridge Railway. The name morphed into the Metropolitan, and it connected with the Great Western at Paddington. That had investment by the Great Western Railway. It connected with the Great Northern at King's Cross, the decision was that they were not to invest, but to pay to use the tracks for trains into the city. The required investment was £1 million. By 1859, the project was faltering, and our hero Pearson persuaded the city corporation to invest £200,000. The city corporation also sold land cheaply to the railway. Construction started in October 1859 using the cut and cover principle where the railway is in a cutting and is roofed over for much of its length. The new road was dug up to allow for the building 
resulting in traffic chaos. And the crown of the tunnel arches was inches under the road. This picture of a model at the London Transport Museum in London demonstrates the upheaval caused by the cut-and-cover principle. This second photograph is a close-up of the tunnel work. And here we have a photograph taken at the time in the Marylebone Road in 1862. Now you couldn't build under houses. If you did, the law required that you purchase the houses. So you had to build under the roads. The Metropolitan Line runs in a cutting for part of its lengths, and many stations had glass roofs, but there was little building at street level. The photograph here is from Edgware Road Station on the Metropolitan Railway, looking west during construction around 1862. Baker Street and Euston Square were completely underground with bricked-over roofs. The dark. Victorians were terrified of the dark, so creative apertures were built to let light in from above. Gas lighting from large suspended globe lights was the start of a standard design that was used throughout the Metropolitan Railway. The Metropolitan Railway grew. It expanded, first eastbound to Finsbury Circus, called Moorgate Street, opening on the 23rd of December 1865. There was an intermediate station at Aldersgate Street, now called Barbican. There was a new surface building at Farringdon Street, with a frontage in Suffolk stone, Roman arches, decorative roof urns, fine finials, and became the model for future metropolitan railway stations. So here we see a standard design starting. There was more expansion. The Hammersmith and City Railway, which was a joint venture between the Great Western and the Metropolitan. Mainly above ground because it skirted the built-up area. The stations were basic with wooden canopies over exposed platforms and it opened on the 13th of June 1864. The Great Western Railway sold its interest to the Metropolitan Railway in 1923 at the time of grouping. It became a line in its own right in 1990 when the Metropolitan Railway ceased to go west of Baker Street and Bishop's Road Paddington, the original terminus, now only serves the Hammersmith and City line with other underground lines going through the Prade Street station at Paddington. The photograph here is of Ladbroke Grove Station which opened on the 16th of December 1868. We now come to the creation of an inner circle. In 1864, a Lord Select Committee concluded that there was a need for an inner circle line in London. And a new company was created in 1866, the Metropolitan District Railway. It would go west, then south from Paddington, with the new station at Prade Street. It opened on the 10th of October 1868, running as far as Brompton, now Gloucester Road, and continued to Westminster on the 24th of December 1868. This resulted in nine new surface-level stations, all in a similar style to Farringdon Street. And apart from Gloucester Road, all of them were single-storey. The line ran mainly in deep cuttings, with little tunnel, thus saving on costs. 
Let's have a look at a few more personalities. Edward Watkin, 26th of September 1819 to the 13th of April 1901. He was born in Salford. He had interests in many railway companies and became a director in 1872. He was responsible for the Great Central Extension into Marylebone. He was passionate about linking Britain with France using a tunnel. You come down by train on the Great Central from the north, through London using the Metropolitan Tunnels. He was a director of the South Eastern Railway, giving him access to the Channel, and he was also a director of the Chemin de Fer du Nord in France. All he needed was a tunnel. Another personality was James Starts Forbes, 7th of March 1823 to the 5th of April 1904. He was born in Aberdeen and studied under Brunel. He became general manager of a Dutch rail company and then joined the board of the District Railway in October 1870. At that time, the district was close to bankruptcy. He worked with the London and South Western Railway and others to extend links into the southern suburbs. All of these extensions were resulting in delays to the inner circle because both companies had their eyes on the suburbs. In April 1868, the Metropolitan went north, with a single line between Baker Street and Swiss Cottage. Then west, because in 1877 the Metropolitan reached Richmond. In 1880 it reached Harrow. The District Railway also expanded west, a small station at Earl's Court in 1871. In 1879, services had reached Ealing, and on the 1st of March 1880, services reached Putney Bridge, in time for that year's boat race. On the 1st of May 1883, a service started to Hounslow, and before 1890, the district had reached Ealing Broadway, Richmond and Wimbledon all leading to delays in completing the inner circle and also resulting in stress between the two companies responsible for the building of the inner circle. Pressure was applied for completion and in 1874 the Metropolitan Inner Circle Completion Company was formed. That's a name that rolls off the tongue. And it was supported by the District Railway, but it struggled to raise finance. The District Railway section of the inner circle was expensive to build. It wasn't easy to follow roads in the locations through which it was running, so it required house purchase and demolition. South Kensington to Westminster cost three million pounds. And remember, the initial estimated cost for the original Metropolitan Railway was only one million pounds. The section between Westminster and Blackfriars was built in the Victoria Embankment, utilising the engineering work from the major sewer being put in by Baldwin The district was in a severe financial position at this time, and the Metropolitan, who'd been considering a merger, decided not to merge. Station by Station Opened on the 23rd of December 1865, Aldersgate Street, now Barbican, and Moorgate. 1st of October 1868, Paddington Prade Street, Bayswater, Notting Hill Gate, High Street Kensington and Brompton, now Gloucester Road. 24th of December 1868, 
South Kensington, Sloane Square, Victoria, St James's Park and Westminster. On the 30th of May 1870, Blackfriars Temple and a station at Charing Cross, which is now known as Embankment. On the 3rd of July 1871, Mansion House. On the 11th of July 1875, Bishopsgate, now Liverpool Street. On the 18th of November 1876, Allgate. And on the 25th of September 1882, a station was built at Tower Hill. It was built in 60 hours in wood by the Metropolitan because they wanted to have the rights to a station there before the district built one. And on the 6th of October 1884, the proper Tower Hill station opened along with Cannon Street. On the 6th of October 1884, the inner circle became fully operational. The tracks were cluttered with Metropolitan, District and other trains not running the circle. There was a train every 10 minutes, the same as today. Metropolitan trains ran clockwise round the circle and district trains ran anti-clockwise. That resulted in uneven wheel wear on the trains. In May 1885, the foot tunnel from South Kensington under Exhibition Road to the cluster of new museums was opened by the district railway. We now come to 23 and 24 Leinster Gardens, between Paddington and Bayswater. 23 and 24 Leinster Gardens are a legend of the London Underground. Leinster Gardens is a row of grand houses, and the underground resulted in the demolition of two of the houses. So fake facades were built five feet thick to give the impression that the row of houses was unbroken. Now these fake facades have been used in many practical jokes. Many deliveries have been sent there and in the 1930s a confidence trickster ran a ten guinea ball. Disappeared with the money but of course those turning up found that the residences were empty. In the space behind the facades which was completely open locomotives were able to vent steam and smoke. This was possible because Daniel Gooch had designed the condensing tank engine, such as those which vented there. The Metropolitan Railway heads northwest. Believe it or not, by going northwest, they saw this as the gateway to the south. They envisaged that there would be profitable use by other railways wanting to access the city or the southeast. And the Midland built a tunnel to link to Moorgate Street. The Metropolitan doubled the two tracks between King's Cross and Moorgate Street. This is known as the Widen Lines. In 1871, a link from Snow Hill Tunnel to the Widen Lines was opened, so trains could approach from the south. Onwards to Verney Junction. Watkin had grand plans. Above ground and in open countryside, it was cheaper to build and a lot cleaner. Like the district, the idea was to bring commuters into London. On the 2nd of August 1880, the line reached Harrow. In 1885, it had got to Pinner, and on the 1st of September 1887, an hourly service to Northwood and Rickmansworth started. 
On the 8th of July, 1889, the Metropolitan Railway reached Chesham. On the 1st of July, 1891, it took over the Aylesbury and Buckinghamshire Railway. But north of Aylesbury, the Leiden needed upgrading. And on the 1st of January, 1897, through trains ran the 60 miles from Baker Street to Verney Junction. The Metropolitan transported manure from London to the farmers of Verney Junction, a benefit of the horse bus boom. They built a hotel for those taking the excursion to Verney Junction and in 1910 introduced a Pullman service from Verney Junction to Allgate. Carriages called Galatea and Mayflower were used. They included a bar. Now, today booze is banned on the underground thanks to ex-Mayor Johnson. But why Verney Junction? It was six miles south of Quainton Road Junction, the start of the Brill Tramway, which was planned to go to Oxford, only 12 miles away. It was also a junction with the Great Central Railway. It was part of the route to France. Because, as I said earlier, Watkin was a director of the Great Central, the Metropolitan, the South Eastern and the Chemin de Fer du Nord. All he needed was a tunnel. We then come to electricity. And London was behind the times compared to the seaside. Because in 1883, Volk's Electric Railway had begun in Brighton. In 1885, Blackpool's trams had started. And here we see examples of Volk's electric railway car number four built in 1892, which could carry 40 people, and also Blackpool Conduit car number four from the initial fleet. The cut and cover principle had caused much disruption during the building of the initial railways. Steam was unpleasant in tunnels. Electricity had to be the future. And electricity also allowed the digging of much deeper holes. So let's look at some of the personalities who made this possible. The first of which has to be James Henry Greathead, who lived from the 6th of August 1844 to the 12th of October 1896. He was born in Grahamstown in South Africa. He had success with the Tower subway. It was dug using a shield. He perfected the great head shield, which made the deep tube possible. Fundamentally, it's an iron shield where, after the clay was loosened, half a dozen men dug. Iron tunnel segments were then assembled in the sleeve. And the shield was jacked forwards, cutting into the clay, and then more clay was dug out. The thin gap between the iron tunnel and the clay was filled by injecting liquid cement. The first of the deep tubes was the City and South London Railway. In 1884, a syndicate was formed for the City of London and Southwark Railway to run from Elephant and Castle to King William Street. And it was originally intended to have cable haul trains, but the contractor went bankrupt. And so it changed to electric locomotives. The up and down trains ran in separate, small tunnels. There was electric lighting. It was popular, but sadly not popular enough to recover its initial capital costs. It was the passengers that nicknamed it the Tube. And it opened on the 18th of December 1890, 
renamed the City and South London Railway and ran for 3.2 miles. Initially, there were six stations, all with lifts, at Stockwell, Oval, Kennington, Elephant and Castle, Borough and King William Street. And there you can see a photograph of one of the early locomotives running on that line. The first locomotives were built by Mather and Platt in 1889-1890. Here we have two views of locomotive number 13. As you can see, a health and safety inspector today would have found this an absolute nightmare. The City and South London Stockwell Works built its first locomotive in 1897-1898. What were the firsts of the City and South London Railway? Well, it was the first deep-level underground railway. It was the first electric railway to run under a major waterway, the Thames. The passageways and platforms were lined with oblong white ceramic tiles with a burnt red border in the arts and crafts style. That was a house style. The Thomas Figgis designs for the street level buildings at five stations, which were single storey, red brick and domes. The domes housed the lift mechanism. The size of the tunnels was 10 foot 2 to 10 foot 6. These were actually enlarged in the 1920s. The carriages had very narrow windows and the station names were announced by the guard. There were bench seats running lengthways. There was copious red cushioning and inside you can see the conditions in which the passengers travelled. They were nicknamed padded cells. Extensions to Islington and Clapham were granted in 1890 but there were delays whilst finance was arranged. The extension would bypass King William Street. Lines were still being built under roads to reduce costs, and at King William Street there were sharp curves on the approach to the station. Indeed, to get the lines into the King William Street station, it had been necessary to build the tubes one above the other on the approach. There was also a steep incline to the station. So the extension resulted in new tunnels at Borough for London Bridge. And on the 25th of February 1900, King William Street Station closed and London Bridge, Bank and Moorgate Street were opened. And on the 3rd of June 1900, the extension to Clapham Road, now Clapham North, and Clapham Common opened. On the 17th of November 1901, Old Street City Road, which closed in 1922, and Angel stations were opened. Many of the stations featured island platforms. There are now only two left, at Clapham Common and Clapham North. Growth was eased through legislation. The apparent success of the City and South London Railway, people hadn't seen the books, triggered bills for more tube lines. And in 1892, a joint select committee laid out some ground rules. Tunnels had to have a minimum diameter of 11 foot 6 inches. The City and South London Railway was at least a foot smaller. New developments were granted freeway leaves under public streets. And following public streets is why there are so many bends on the underground. 
many of them very tight, leading to squealing wheels as the trains go along the track. The service had to include a number of cheap and frequent trains, and if the line went under private property, companies could acquire a wayleave rather than purchasing the freehold, although this was subject to compensation for any damage to the buildings above. Next came the drain, the Waterloo and City Railway. And this was the first line to pierce the inner circle, just. It was built by the Waterloo and City Railway Company and encouraged by the London and South Western Railway because Waterloo was too far from the city. It was acquired by the London and South Western Railway on the 1st of January 1907. It's a one and a half mile journey from Waterloo to Bank and the railway has just a station at each end. It's completely underground, including the depot. Armstrong and Whitworth built a lift to get the carriages out. These days a crane is used to get carriages in and out. The City of London blocked a building at Bank with a lift, so access was using a slope. The Travelator, which is still there, was installed in 1960. The trains were the first electrical multiple units in the United Kingdom, and it opened on the 8th of August 1898. It was sold to London Transport by British Railways for the sum of £1 in 1994. The Central London Railway, it became known as the Tupney Tube, and the original line ran from Bank to Shepherd's Bush. 31 great head shields were used at the peak of the construction, and the line follows the roads. In the city, the curves are tight, even in the stations, so it really is a case of mind the gap. The buildings were light brown and terracotta with the word tube on them. In Oxford Street, Gordon Selfridge wanted the Bond Street station to be called Selfridge's, with a passage to his store. The Daily Mail christened the line the Tupney Tube. Initially it made good returns, but with increasing competition, these declined. The track has an incline up to every station and then down from it. This helps the braking of the trains coming into the station and acceleration out of the station. They built substations along the route so it didn't suffer from any voltage drops. Sadly, it smelt. There were fans. There was ionised air. But it still smelt down there. Some more personalities. Charles Tyson Yerkes. 25th of June 1837 to the 29th of December 1905. He was born in Northern Liberties near Philadelphia and was involved in planning Chicago's public transport system. In 1886, he created complex financial machinations to enable the takeover of the North Chicago Street Railway, and in 1902 established the Underground Electric Railways Limited, UERL, in London. This took control of the district railway in 1902, and was involved in building the Baker Street and Waterloo Railway, which he'd bought from the liquidators, the Charing Cross, Euston and Hampstead Railway, and the Great Northern Piccadilly and Brompton Railway. He used similar complex financing as he'd used in the US, 
UERL shares were particularly dodgy. He even outwitted the ambitions of J.P. Morgan and London Electric Tramways. He was twice married and had many affairs. Leslie Green, 6th of February 1875 to the 31st of August 1908. In such a short life, he did an incredible amount, and you can still see Leslie Green's work in the underground. He was an architect famed for his design of underground stations, and in 1903 was appointed architect to the UERL. He developed a distinctive arts and crafts style, Oxblood red tiles outside, made by the Leeds Fire Clay Company. Semi-circular windows and different coloured tile borders in each of the 43 stations. Why different colours? Because of the literacy of many of the passengers on the railways. People potentially couldn't read the station name, but they could recognise the colour of the station they needed to get off at. The station names were in tiles, which of course created issues when names change. For example, Great Central to Marylebone. If you go to one end of the platform at Marylebone Underground Station on the Bakerloo line today, you will still see tiles saying Great Central. All direction signs were in tiling. And stations had flat roofs, because the idea was to sell or rent space above them. He is responsible for the designs of today's Bakerloo, Piccadilly and Northern Lines. George Stegman Gibb, 30th of April 1850 to the 17th of December 1925. In 1906, appointed Managing Director and Chairman of UERL. By this time, UERL was in financial difficulties. They'd built three new lines. They had one to electrify the district, and the revenues were below expectation. George Stegman Gibb recruited Frank Pick and Albert Stanley, two of the people who made the undergrounds of London secure. He moved on in 1910, but Pick and Stanley were there for many more years. Which brings me to Frank Pick. 23rd of April 1878 to the 7th of November 1941. The photograph here is part of a memorial unveiled on the 75th anniversary of his death at Piccadilly Circus Station. Piccadilly Circus is reckoned to be the flagship of the London Underground. He was possibly the most influential person in the history of the Underground. In 1906 he'd moved from the North Eastern Railway to UERL and he joined as assistant to George Gibb. In 1908, he was working in the publicity office, working on the corporate identity of the underground. His belief, the test of the goodness of a thing, is its fitness for use. By 1909, he was a traffic development officer, and in 1912, the commercial manager. He was charged with increasing passenger numbers and believed one solution was to increase off-peak usage. He commissioned posters in standard sizes. These posters in standard sizes had standard positioning in the station 
and in limited numbers. So we went from the plethora of posters stuck everywhere on every station where it might have been difficult to even find where the station name was to a standard design that you still see today. And he commissioned Edward Johnson to design a new typeface, which was introduced in 1916. He commissioned the best designers, commercial artists and graphic designers to develop a corporate identity that has lasted for over 100 years. He introduced the underground with a large U and a large D at either end as a brand. He introduced the first roundel. He supported the introduction of Henry Beck's tube map. And in 1924 commissioned Charles Holden to design the new stations for the post-World War I expansion into the suburbs. It is said that Frank Pick refused both a knighthood and a peerage. But he did accept award for his consulting work on the Moscow Metro. He wasn't good at delegating and in all probability he worked himself to death. The Baker Street and Waterloo Line, today's Bakerloo. In 1893 a company was established to build the railway, and in 1898 work commenced, though there had been struggles to raise the finance. In 1900 there was the collapse of the parent company, result of fraud by a major shareholder, and in 1902 the bankrupt company became a subsidiary of the UERL. On the 10th of March 1906, it opened from Elephant and Castle to Baker Street, and in 1907 extended to Edgware Road. Using a different station from the Metropolitan Station, there are signs in both to this day telling people where to find the other Edgware Road station. This extension ran via Great Central Station, which is now Marylebone, and in 1913 it reached Paddington. All the stations were designed by Leslie Green. In the first year of operation, it was obvious that the passenger estimates were extremely over-optimistic, and the Bakerloo always struggled to make money. In 1915-17 to 17, it was extended to Queen's Park and surfaced, connecting with the London and North Western Railway running to Watford. The power was supplied from the UERL power station at Lotts Road. Here we see two photographs, one of Oxford Circus Station, to this day in Oxblood red tiles, and also an original ticket office window at Edgware Road Station. Also the platform at Regent's Park with the name in tiles. We next get to the Great Northern Piccadilly and Brompton Railway, today's Piccadilly Line. In 1902, the company was established by the UERL. It was formed through the merger of the Brompton and Piccadilly Circus Railway and the Great Northern and Strand Railway. And this merger resulted in the building of the Aldwych, or Strand, section of the line. It opened in 1906 and served 22 stations and ran for 8.8 miles between Hammersmith and Finsbury Park. Stations were again designed by Leslie Green. Most of the line ran in tunnels, but the westernmost 1200 yards was above ground. It was obvious in the first year that yet again the passenger estimates were over optimistic. The Charing Cross Euston and Hampstead Railway, better known these days as the Charing Cross branch of the Northern Line, 
1891, a company was established to build the Hampstead Tube. Over a decade passed whilst it tried to get funding. In 1900, it became a subsidiary of UERL. The funds were raised using foreign investors yet again. On the 22nd of June 1907, it opened from Charing Cross to Archway and Golders Green. In 1914, there was an extension to the embankment station, and in 1923, it reached Hendon Central. In 1924, it reached Edgware, and on the 13th of September 1926, Waterloo and Kennington were opened, the same day as the City and South London Railway opened an extension to Morden. Kennington is, of course, where the two Northern Line sections meet. The CSLR had been purchased by UERL in 1913 and the lines were coordinated leading to the birth of the Northern Line. So now we look at how the underground railways grew. First of all, Metroland. Metroland was in many ways a lifestyle. Railways had always bought more land than they actually needed. They usually sold it back to the landowners who profited from the increased value. But the Metropolitan was able to retain the land that it had bought. And it had bought a lot of land all along the route north from Baker Street. Other railways triggered third-party developments. The Metropolitan did its own with Metroland. They created settlements, which were then expanded by third parties. Today we'd think of the landscape as idyllic. Fields, woods, thatched cottages, country pubs. But to the Edwardians, it was boring, everyday life. In 1919, the Metropolitan Railway Country Estates Limited, MCRE, was formed, and it developed on the Garden City concept, a verdant realm set in gentle flower-decked downs with houses called homesteads and built on estates. Well, they were built on estates until the LCC started to build its own estates, to rehouse slum dwellers within the boundaries of London. The railway transported you cleanly in fast, luxurious electric trains from 1905. And here we see locomotive number five, John Hampden, built in 1922-1923, which was withdrawn in 1962 at the London Transport Museum in Covent Garden. The estate started in Neasden. These were the cheapest. And most of the houses were semi-detached, no matter what the advertising suggested. You could buy a semi-detached house in Metroland for £400. And it was about owner-occupation, the new way of living. In 1973, there was a television documentary by John Betjeman, which introduced Metroland to the masses. In Neasden, he is told you can see 400 species of birds. In Pinna, the residents of larger houses cleaned their cars to the Osmonds. Early advertising suggested that there was enough space to build a garage. At Moore Park, which is pretty posh, he mentions how close golf is to London. The further you got from London, the smarter the development. But they never reached Verney Junction. For the residents of Metroland visiting London, you could have afternoon tea in the Chiltern Court restaurant at Baker Street after your shopping trip. It's now a Weatherspoons pub. Chiltern Court was home to Arnold Bennett, H.G. Wells, Huey Green and E. McKnight Cowfer. He was a tube poster artist. 
Now let's look at creating the Northern Line. This was the combination of the two underground railways that UERL had acquired between Euston and Kennington. So the first thing that was necessary was to widen the original city and South London railway lines. And the poster here shows the launch of the new combined railway from Euston to Clapham Common, with the transformation being complete. Increase the tunnel size, so the city in South London had reached Euston in 1907, using a separate station to the Charing Cross, Euston and Hampstead Railway. On the 13th of January 1913, UERL had bought the city in South London Railway, and on the 8th of August 1922, the line between Euston and Moorgate was closed. The tunnel rings were removed, a few at a time, dug out and reassembled with spacers. The rest of the line remained open. The works continued at night. But following a collapse of the tunnel at Elephant and Castle in November 1923, it was completely closed until it was completed. The platforms were lengthened, some escalators replaced lifts, and stations were retiled. On the 24th of April 1924, Euston to Moorgate reopened. On the 1st of December 1924, the line fully reopened as far as Clapham Common. The next stage for the Northern Line was to go south to Morden. So whilst widening the tunnels, an extension was built through Clapham South, Balham, Tooting Beck, Tooting Broadway, Collier's Wood, Wimbledon South and on to Morden. It was originally planned to extend to Sutton, but the Southern Railway had a different view and there were issues with that extension. And this extension, as far as Morden, opened on the 13th of September, 1926. The same time the Piccadilly Railway was expanding north and west. In the 1930s, the world was suffering a depression. Money was made available for public works. A station at Finsbury Park was very congested due to it being the terminus of the line. And the idea was to go north, to Cockfosters. In building this part of the line, 22 tunnelling shields were used. And on the 19th of September 1932, the line opened as far as Arnos Grove. And here you can see the Grade 2 star listed Arnos Grove station designed by Charles Holden. On the 19th of July 1933, the line reached Cockfosters. On the 4th of July 1932, district line services from Hammersmith to South Harrow were taken over by the Piccadilly. On the 23rd of October 1933, the line went on to Uxbridge. On the 9th of January 1933, it went to Northfields. On the 13th of March 1933, it reached Hounslow West. And here you can see a photograph of the magnificent Osterley station. In 1975, the line was extended via Hatton Cross into Heathrow Airport. And on the 27th of March 2008, the line extended to Terminal 5. During the Piccadilly expansion, 15 stations were rebuilt in central London. The flagship station at Piccadilly Circus replaced the old station. This flagship opened in December 1928. When initially opened, the station had leakage issues. You can see the stains on the ceiling in the photograph. The station itself was designed to handle up to 50 million passengers a year. 
Currently, over 40 million passengers use it each year. At the same time, Brompton Road, Down Street and York Road stations were closed. The creation of the London Passenger Transport Board, better known as London Transport. This was responsible for all local public transport in London from 1933 to 1948. It was created by the London Passenger Transport Act in 1933, enacted on the 13th of April. Lord Ashfield was the chairman and Frank Pick was on the board. The area covered was based on a 30-mile radius from Charing Cross. In 1948, it was replaced by the London Transport Executive. The New Works programme, which ran from 1935 to 1940, it cost £42,286,000 in 1936 currency. On the Metropolitan Line, there were additional tracks from Harrow-on-the-Hill to Rickmansworth. There was electrification from Rickmansworth to Aylesbury and Chesham. There was the installation of electric light signals on that same stretch as well. On the Bakerloo, new tunnels between Baker Street and Finchley Road. It took over the rear line tracks to Wembley Park from the Metropolitan. New stations were created at St John's Wood and Swiss Cottage. They replaced three closing stations on the Metropolitan Line. This part of the Bakerloo Line transferred to the Jubilee Line in 1979. The Northern Line had the Northern Heights plan, the transfer of the Metropolitan's Great Northern and City branch to Northern Line operation, to connect the Great Northern and City at Finsbury Park to LNER's line to Edgware, High Barnet and Alexandra Palace, to build new tunnels from Archway to Highgate and East Finchley to connect to the Edgware and High Barnet branches, an extension from Edgware to Bushy Heath, cancelled in 1950 because of green belt considerations. The central line. Reline the tunnels and lengthen the platforms between Shepherd's Bush and Liverpool Street. This would enable increased speeds and longer trains. Replace the line's non-standard track power supply with the fourth rail system. To extend west from North Acton, this would require taking over the GWR line to Denham. That fell foul of the Metropolitan Greenbelt. Extend east from Liverpool Street via Stratford to take over the LNER lines to Epping, Ongar and Hainault. In World War II, the tunnels to Leighton and also the section from Leightonstone to Newbury Park were used as air raid shelters, though there was a disaster at Bethnal Green on the 3rd of March 1943. And also they were used as factories operated by Plessy. In the infrastructure side, there were improvements to the power supply system from Lots Road. Improvements too, and the rebuilding of many busy central area stations, with the installation of escalators to replace lifts. For rolling stock, we saw the design and build of a new fleet of trains, the 1938 stock for the Northern Bakerloo and Piccadilly lines, which were in service from 1938 to 1988 on the underground. And since 1989, they've been the railway stock for the Island Line on the Isle of Wight. There was a plan to convert the loco-hauled dreadnought coaches to electric working on the newly electrified Metropolitan Main Line to Aylesbury. This scheme was abandoned and later the A60 stock was designed. There was the design of the O stock for the Hammersmith and City, 
the P stock for the Metropolitan Line and the Q stock for the District Line. Also saw the conversion of hand-worked door stock to air door operation. For completeness, out of our current era, we saw the Victoria Line. The first part opened in 1968. It reached Victoria in 1969 and the terminus at Brixton in 1971. It was the first completely new underground line for over 50 years. It was the first line to use automatic train operation, although it still has drivers. It was the first time a reigning monarch rode on the underground on the 7th of March 1969. It was the Jubilee Line originally called the Fleet Line, part new build, part existing between Stanmore and Baker Street. It was renamed the Jubilee Line for the Silver Jubilee, but opened late, two years later. The original terminus at Charing Cross was closed when the line was extended to Stratford in 1999. Oh, and whilst I think about it, this year's theme is the 1970s. What is this a picture of? It's the interior of a C69 stock smoking carriage in 1978. You can see the cigarette packets on the floor. Next I come to posters and advertising by the Underground. The Underground has over 100 years of leading poster design. We start with a simple visual message showing the superiority of the Underground in getting from A to B. This poster by Alfred Leet in 1915 was called Speed. We see posters creating an image that the underground is far more than just a means of commuting, creating off-peak usage for the system. Here, The Way Out, The Night Out, Underground by Harold Sandys Williamson in 1928. The Boat Race Centenary by Richard T. Cooper in 1929. And how things have changed. It may have been true then, but is it true now? Have you been on the Bake Erlu line recently? It's tunnelled through London's clay, and heat is generated by motors, brakes and people. Clay retains heat. There's over 110 years of heat in the Bakerloo line. It's fundamentally a tandoori oven. Maps. Early underground maps were geographically correct. And here we see a London Electric Railways map from 1908. But they were complex to look at. They had a different colour scheme to that used today. They were difficult to follow, especially where more than one line was running in the same place. In 1933, Harry Beck's pocket map was launched. Harry Beck was an engineering draftsman laid off by the underground. In 1931... Beck produced his first draft of a new type of map. All the lines were vertical, horizontal or diagonal. The central area was expanded to make it easier to read. It was rejected, like so many things on the underground. In 1932, he was back in employment and tried again. Three quarters of a million were printed as pocket maps in January 1933. Later in 1933, because of the success of the pocket map, a poster version was printed as well. And here we see the December 2018 pocket map, 
stills following the same design concepts as introduced by Harry Beck. The bottom left-hand corner acknowledges his work. I now come to 55 Broadway. 55 Broadway was built above St James's Park Station. It was completed in 1929. It was awarded the Royal Institute of British Architects London Architectural Medal. And the exterior featured sculptors by famous and some controversial artists of the time. Today it is Grade 1 listed. It has been the headquarters for the Underground Group, London Transport and Transport for London. In the 19th century the area was a slum. It started to change when the Metropolitan District Railway opened St James's Park Station in 1868. The District Railway first built their offices here in 1898. These were enlarged in 1905 and again in 1909 and it was renamed Electric Railway House. The offices were extended again in 1922 and in 1926 the board decided to build a new office to centralise all staff. Electric Railway House was demolished. It was built on an awkwardly shaped plot over the district line station. Those who made it possible were Lord Ashfield, the chairman, Frank Pick, managing director of the underground, Charles Holden, the architect, and they created a building that was ambitious, distinctive and efficient. This photograph here is some of the ceiling detail. It's a 14-storey building. At that time, it was London's tallest at 53 metres. It was built in a cruciform shape to maximise the use of the awkward footprint. And it was significantly bigger than first planned. But it got board approval in a single day. The building itself is a steel-framed skeleton with 700 concrete piles going 12 metres below the basement level. There are 19 load-bearing steel girders over St James's Park Station and over 2,000 cubic metres of unpolished Portland stone were used to clad the building. The building is stepped at higher levels to allow light to the streets, and it was completed in 1929. Holden and Pick had agreed as part of the design to limit the decorative ornamentation. There are, however, ten sculptures on the outside at the sixth floor level. Jacob Epstein's Night and Day were particularly controversial. They were condemned in the press when unveiled, and the Daily Express described Night as a prehistoric blood-sodden cannibal intoning a horrid ritual over a dead victim. You can see a photograph of Night there. They are now seen as a great example of 20th century architectural sculpture, a symbol for freedom. The interior is simple but impressive. There was unpolished marble to complement the Portland stone exterior. The doors are made of bronze, enamel, glass and walnut. And here we see a grade one listed corridor in the executive area. There are teak parquet floors, large windows on the upper floors, movable partitions for flexibility. Heated using water heated coils set into the floor. There was a big executive hierarchy in the London transport of those days and many perks. The 10th floor, the top of the lift, 
saw the executive dining room. Others had to go out and find meals elsewhere. On the 14th floor, there's a rooftop viewing area, and the views from that rooftop are magnificent. In 1950, part of the second floor became a middle management dining room. Others could use a ground floor canteen. In the late 1970s, with London's transport system in disrepair, Horace Cutler, the leader of the Greater London Council, commissioned a report resulting in a cut in the executive privileges. In 1970, there was a Grade 2 listing. This covered the facades, the main staircase, the lift lobbies and the seventh floor's east wing. On the 1st of January 2011, the listing was elevated to Grade 1. Disused underground stations. There are 23 in total. The first to close was King William Street in 1900, just nine years and three months after it opened. I discussed King William Street earlier in the talk. And then there was North End, abandoned in 1906. What do I mean by abandoned? They'd started to build the underground station, below ground, but they never even started on the above ground buildings. It was decided that there was no need for this underground station. It's also referred to as the Bull and Bush, after the pub not far away. And then who remembers Hounslow Town, City Road, South Kentish Town, Down Street, York Road, Dover Street, British Museum, Brompton Road, Osterley Park and Spring Grove, St Mary's Uxbridge, Lords and Marlborough Road. All those are closed by 1939. And then Swiss Cottage, the Metropolitan Line Swiss Cottage that is, and Wood Lane closed in the 1940s. South Acton and White City, they departed in 1959. Aldwych in 1994 and Charing Cross Jubilee Line platforms in 1999. The final closure was Shoreditch in 2006. I'd now like to look at one or two of those stations in a little bit more detail. And I'm going to start with Down Street. Down Street Station, a Leslie Green tube station on the Piccadilly line, is between Green Park and Hyde Park Corner. It opened on the 15th of March 1907, three months late, and is a typical Leslie Green building with oxblood red tiles, pillars and semicircular windows outside. The platforms are 61 foot 8 inches below ground level. Sadly, the station was never well used. Other stations were too close to it and people preferred to go there. In addition, the area which Down Street is in is an extremely wealthy area and may well at that time have not been an area where the people used the underground. It was missed by some trains from 1909, just two years after it had opened. And from the 5th of May 1918, there was no Sunday service. The last train ran on the 21st of May 1932. And that might have been it. But as the clouds of war gathered over Europe, brick walls were built at the edge of the platforms for privacy. Underground passageways were fitted out as offices and became the wartime headquarters of the Railway Executive Committee. This committee ran all the railways across Britain during the war. 
there were toilets, and two bathrooms still survive. I wouldn't want to use them, but they could, I suppose, be cleaned up. Part was fitted out for use by the War Cabinet, and Winston Churchill had quarters there, quite often walking across Green Park to Down Street. Occasionally, trains did stop there to let out a VIP who had travelled from somewhere else on the underground system in the driver's cab. The photographs here show you directions to a committee room and also some VIP either entering or leaving the driver's cab of a train. These photographs show you a typical Leslie Green set of tiles showing the way out and then a photograph of the kitchens and finally a photograph of the switchboard in one of the corridors in the station. Our next disused underground station is the Aldwych. And when the station closed in 1994, it was already seen as a museum piece. It was at the end of a branch on the Piccadilly line served by a shuttle service. And in reality, Aldwych should never have been built. But it was part of the plans for one of the two lines that constituted the Piccadilly line. It opened in 1907 as Strand Station. And even from its date of opening it was never heavily used. It provided shelter from the Blitz to both Londoners and also valuable artworks from the museums in London. One of the platforms was exclusively for the storage of the valuable artworks. There was one issue, which was the humidity, caused by all the Londoners sheltering on the other platform. It's also seen as being valuable for emergency planning exercises and for the backdrop for films that require underground stations of a certain era. In these photographs you can see the assistance window. Originally was the ticket office. You can see the eastern platform where all the artefacts were stored during the war. And also, not quite sure why, but there's a very interesting poster regarding the benefits to farmers from the common market. When they were building Aldwych, they realised it would be underused, and so economies were made during the building process. They only had one set of stairs and passages to the platforms, the others were never completed. Only the part of the western platform, where the two-carriage short shuttle train stopped, was ever tiled. The eastern platform was not used for passenger services after 1914. The photograph that accompanies this shows you the interior of one of the lifts. At the time of closure, Aldwych Station was only used by 450 people per day. From June 1958, the service only operated in the rush hour, and it closed on the 30th of September 1994. The main reasons for closure were that the 1907 lifts needed to be replaced and that would have cost a significant amount of money. At that time, the subsidy was £2.73 per passenger journey. That was £150,000 a year in 1994 money. Today, the single line to the western platform can still be used and is used for filming and also for training underground emergency response unit staff. Our next disused underground station is Charing Cross, 
or more truthfully, the Jubilee Line platforms at Charing Cross. Charing Cross itself evolved from several underground stations. There was Trafalgar Square on the Bakerloo Line that opened in 1906, Strand on what is now the Northern Line opening in 1914, and Charing Cross Jubilee Line Station opening in 1977. Until the 12th of September 1976, the station that we now know as Embankment was called Charing Cross, and the Fleet Line was planned to link Baker Street with Charing Cross, although today's Jubilee Line no longer serves Charing Cross. In the building of the Jubilee Line station at Charing Cross, they wanted to prevent traffic chaos from the excavations, so a narrow-gauge railway was built from the works to behind the National Gallery so that the spoil could be removed easily. One of the tunnels that I have been along there has a big kink in the middle of it, and that's where the base of Nelson's Column is. A ventilation shaft, nearly as tall as Nelson's Column, seen in the photograph, was built on Craven Street. And the name change from the Fleet Line to the Jubilee Line cost over £50,000 in 1977 money, because many of the signs and other platform furniture had already been named with the Fleet Line. In 1999, the Jubilee Line was extended to Stratford because new tunnelling equipment had allowed tunnels to be dug through the water-bearing gravel on the south bank. If Charing Cross had remained in use, there would need to have been very tight curves in the extended line, so a decision was taken that Charing Cross Jubilee Line Station would close and that the line would go via Westminster. The extension opened and Charing Cross Jubilee Line platforms closed on the 20th of November 1999. The station can still be used as a siding for the line if needed. All you have to do is go through some doors, down a set of escalators and you are in the Jubilee Line station. It's relatively modern for an underground station and it has live running rails and is often used for filming. Often different scenes from different stations are mocked up here. You can have a full journey in a single place. The station was dressed as Temple Station, which is on the District and Circle line, for the Bond film Skyfall. And in the photograph on the bottom right, you can see the District and Circle line sign for westbound and eastbound. Unfortunately, just past that sign is a sign that says Jubilee Line. And also the length of the escalator where Bond and the villain slid down the central part is far too deep for a district and circle line platform. The nasty little bumps that they put in on those central sections to stop people sliding down were removed for the film and have never been replaced. We now come to Euston's Lost Tunnels. Not a disused underground station in the true sense but still a very disused part of the underground station at Euston. Two underground railway companies built lines to Euston, those two ultimately becoming the Northern Line, and they used different stations, one on each side of the Euston Main Line station. Until recently, unnoticed by most people passing by, 
one of the station buildings remained because it was used for ventilation equipment for the underground. That building, the Leslie Green Design Station, has only just been demolished to make way for the HS2 requirements at Euston Station. The Charing Cross Euston and Hampstead Railway, known as the Hampstead Tube, and the City and South London Railway both received approval for their lines, and so they ended up with their stations on opposite sides. The City and South London Railway had extended to Euston in 1907. The station had an ornate green and white facade using Dalton's glazed carrowware. The passenger tunnels were finished in white glass. Sadly, that station was demolished many years ago and I cannot find any photographs. The station had an island platform. You still can find island platforms at Clapham North and Clapham Common stations. And the Charing Cross Euston and Hampstead Railway also opened in 1907 with their Leslie Green design station in oxblood red external tiding with ornate green and cream in the ticket hall. The companies agreed to build a connecting passage to join their platforms and also a third set of lifts up into the main concourse of Euston Station. There was a booking office in the passageway because through tickets didn't exist. You had a ticket for one or the other underground line. People preferred the joint ticket office and lift access from Euston Station and both companies' buildings were lightly used. And in 1914, with both companies now part of Underground Electric Railways of London, both station buildings closed on September the 30th. In the 1960s, Euston Station was rebuilt and the Victoria Line opened. There were two new underground platforms at Euston to service the Victoria Line, and so the opportunity was taken to reconfigure the underground station. They removed the island platform on the bank branch. They built a new, larger, modern ticket hall and closed the transfer passage in April 1962. And the poster on the right about Euston Station reconstruction explains about the closure of that passage. New escalators were put in to replace lifts, the old lift shafts being used as ventilation ducts. That happened in 1967. And the Victoria Line platforms opened on the 1st of December 1968. You can also see in the photograph accompanying this slide some of the posters that are still on the wall in the passageway taking you back to the early 1960s. I would like to thank the London Transport Museum who have given me the, a license to use copyright material in this talk. The Hidden London team at the London Transport Museum who provide fascinating tours and have provided the material for the last section of this talk. Andrew Martin, the author of Underground Overground, who's given me inspiration for some of the stories I've told. Mark Ovenden, author of London Underground by Design, who's inspired other parts of this talk. And J.E. Connor, author of London's disused underground stations, who provided some of the material for this last part of the talk. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A History Group, 
or the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group. Thank you for listening to this talk 